You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. It's shortstop. My wife's on second base. And it's the perfect, like, double play setup. And I'm like, this is, this is it. And we're playing like a scrimmage. We're not even in a real league. Ball comes to me on shortstop. Derek Jeter snapped that thing down. I toss it over to Aaron, Robbie Cano. She's on second base, ready to just get that double play. And some guy slide tackles her. I've never met this man in my life. I was ready to throw down. And they knew it was City Lights Church. I was like, no, we're in a scrimmage and you just slide tackled my wife. He's not even an enemy. He's just some random dude. And you might even be here today. And if you are, I'm coming after you, all right? I don't know who you are, but seriously, some guy slide tackles her. And I'm like, we're in a scrimmage and I'm not even an enemy. That's just some random dude. So if we're real, we'll see that the scripture, we have to understand when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's setting up an impossible jump for us that we can never clear. We're not supposed to read the Bible and go, oh, great, love your enemies. Now that sounds cool until somebody actually is your enemy. That doesn't mean love somebody that you kind of don't like. That means love somebody that you can't love. It's kind of like a catch-22, like, if I, if I do this or if I do that, there's no way to win. So when the scripture says love your enemies, what he's trying to say is that apart from God's divine interaction, this is impossible. So when we open up the scripture to the Beatitudes and we read this verse this week, when Jesus says, blessed are those who are merciful, they'll be shown mercy. We have to understand that this is not a stepping stone to receive God's favor. The only way we receive God's favor and grace is through what Christ has accomplished. That's it. So rather than us receiving favor through this, this is the description of a life that has already come to salvation by grace. I've trusted God. I said, Lord, I can't make myself righteous. I can't make myself clean. I depend on you. Got it? All right. We'll we'll continue. It's interesting, though, because when we describe the life of the blessed, what does that mean? Especially, I I saw an article this week on Yahoo News that the um, ideal income for happiness is $161,000 a year. That's the ideal number of happiness. I'm pretty happy, dude, on about, I don't even know. Divide that in a bunch. If I had $161,000 a year, I'd probably be bouncing around the wall and smack my head on things. I wouldn't even know what to do with myself. All I'm simply saying is that $161,000, I think Germany actually had the uh, lowest um, happy income, which was around $85,000. Which, again, I'd say if you're making $85,000 a year, I would hope you're happy. Uh, There's plenty that you can do with that as well. So, interestingly enough, though, when we look at the blessed life, somebody just won the lottery. um, As you know, $525 million. Uh, I believe it was, that came out to, and uh, I have no clue why those people, the first thing they did was set up a news conference. Really? Really? That's your first job. I'm going to, we're millionaires now. We're normal people. We're going to just eat, sleep, and you can jump out in front of our car and sue us anytime you want. We're normal right here. I wouldn't do that. Anyways, it's amazing though, when we look at the blessed life and you see how many people say, if I could just have a little bit more, a little bit more. C.S. Lewis, I'm a great Christian thinker, not only Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and some other books that are phenomenal, but really a great Christian thinker, and I would encourage you to read some of his books, talks about that for every appetite that a human has, there is a sufficient filler for it. So for instance, when you're hungry, what satisfies hunger? Food. So when you're tired, what satisfies tiredness? 
sleep. When you're lonely, what satisfies loneliness? Don't you dare say your computer. What, what satisfies when, you, when you're lonely? Friends, people, camaraderie, community. So anytime you feel an appetite or a hunger, we should be able to say that that's showing us that there's something that we, that we can have. However, in the human soul, whatever that looks like, I'm not going to uh, ponder on that any longer. I'll say that there's something in us that has an appetite that cannot be um, satisfied through food, power, um, sex, through jobs, through success, anything. There's something in us that you will never be able to ultimately satisfy. Now, you can be able to fill that thing with artificial things, but the truth is, uh, I'll use one example, and I know she's extreme. Lindsay Lohan, she was just in the news this past week, punched somebody in the face again. Like, what? who are you? Why do you continue to do this? Like, she just punched somebody in the face, and it's like, I love it. I love, I don't follow her life. I just happen, I think everybody, she's kind of like the person that comes over your house all the time because she's always in the news. Get out. But she's like always, always showing up in the news. Lindsay Lohan. Jack somebody in the nose. Lindsay Lohan ran into somebody's car. Lindsay Lohan threw a phone across the room, broke somebody's teeth out. Like, who are you? But there's something that you look at it and you think, you have all of the success in the world. Why aren't you satisfied? Now, I know the first thought is, well, maybe she's just an extreme example. I agree. She's beyond extreme example. However, it doesn't matter if you go into any avenue, any sphere of society. You'll find people at the top of the mountain that still are stripped of satisfaction. Now, I simply say that that existential longing in us, I would just conclude at that point, or at least assume, if you will, that there is something beyond this world that can satisfy us. I think the scripture then gives us a clear uh, pattern for that through Christ. However, when we talk about Christianity, it's important to remember that Christ isn't just about forgiving us of our personal sins. Uh, It's interesting that... Every football game, you see John 3.16 signs, you know, in the back. You always see, I wonder, I don't know if it's the same guy or if it's just like, you know, when you sit there, they're like, hey, man, you got to hold this sign up here. What? I got to do what? Well, if you got the seat, you got to hold the sign. I don't know why. Everybody's got that sign, John 3.16. What does John 3.16 say? Many of us know it. If you don't, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, we quote First uh, John or John chapter 3, verse 16. And we've almost camped around that verse to the point that in doing that, we've made Christianity solely or primarily about us, that God forgives us of our sins. However, the next verse that follows that in John chapter 3, verse 17 says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn this world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The word world there is the word, world, uh, word cosmos. It's interesting. That God sent Jesus Christ not just to redeem people from their sin as the earth burns and falls away, but God has sent his son in this incredible rescue plan of rescuing this world. It's incredible. It's not just that I'm forgiven of my personal sin, but that God forgives me so that I can then be an agent into this world to bring reconciliation back to this city and this community. It's revolutionizing when we think about Christianity in this light, though. That Christ didn't just merely die to forgive me of my sins, but he forgave me of my sins so that he could put me on mission with him in seeing this world redeemed and restored. Um, For instance, I'm reading a book. I would uh, highly suggest this if you're um, anyone, really. It's called Kingdom Calling uh, by a woman by the name of Amy Sherman. I would really encourage you. 
she talks about how the kingdom of God is not something that we can divorce from our lives. It's something that goes into everything. So depending on if you're a teacher, a doctor, uh, a plumber, whatever you are, the kingdom of God can merge within that. And we can see that a city can be made better, that people can come to a knowledge not only that Christ forgives us of our sin, but that he's broken the curse. It's incredible. Christianity is not uh, confined to a local church here. It's not confined to an hour and a half service. It's confined to no boundaries. So when Jesus describes who are the blessed, it says, if you will, Jesse, if you could put up the first slide, it says this, that he called his disciples to him, and he said this, and they sat down, and he began to teach them, and he opened his mouth, and we're skipping to verse 7. He says, blessed are those who show mercy, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those that are merciful, for they'll receive mercy. Again, this is almost the interior um, lining of a heart that's been redeemed by the kingdom. If you've truly met somebody that's been redeemed by grace, you won't find an arrogance or a pride about, I'm a Christian and you're not. You, that's that's a, not even an oxymoron, it's a complete moron. It's, okay, only Ben got that. There's, a, there's, there's no such thing as a prideful Christian. Now, you might think people are prideful, you might whatever, but it's interesting. If you ask somebody, are you a Christian? Um, the first thing that should come to our minds is, I don't know how, but I am. I'm not quite sure why, but his grace saved me. This past week, uh, Jesse and I were in a conversation with a local business owner in the area, and we were talking through some very controversial issues in Christian faith, and I won't go into them now because it's a opening of a can of worms. Um, but in talking about it, I said, listen, this is hard. I struggle with this. I'm confident in the scripture, but there's hard things about this that I'm not on a, on a mountain saying, I understand everything. I'm humbly saying, I don't understand. So I trust God's word and I try to model humility. See, there's no such thing as a prideful Christian. So when he says, blessed are those that are merciful for they'll be shown mercy. He's saying that apart from Christ, and this is interesting and I want to say this. Christianity does not have a copyright on good works and righteousness. That's good news. There's people that aren't Christians that do phenomenal things for for society, for this world. We don't have a copyright on all of truth. Um, However, Christ is the ultimate truth. We do know that. When we say blessed are the merciful, though, he's saying that this is what the heart of a person that's been arrested by the kingdom of God looks like. That you'll show mercy. It's not something that you have to do. It's something you will do. I think we have to let the gospel saturate our hearts, though, in understanding this. I was recently listening to a message, and a man was talking about an executive in New York City. And uh, this person works for one of the major news stations. And he said, as he was working for the major news station, uh, somebody that was under uh, him, a news anchor, made an awful mistake, awful mistake uh, on TV. Like, you could get fired for it. Have you ever looked at TV news bloopers on YouTube? I would suggest you do that. It's quite hysterical. So she makes this terrible news blooper and is about to lose her job, about to lose her job. And this man, who's her boss, goes in front of the board of whatever major major news station and sits down and goes, it was my fault, I didn't train her enough. And the word gets back to this woman that you're not going to be fired because this man just took the the rap for you and said, "Um, he, he didn't train you enough. And she kept saying, thank you, thank you. Why did you do that? He goes, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. And she goes, no, you don't understand. I've worked in this industry my entire life, and any time I do something right, the person above me takes credit for it. And every time I do something wrong, or they do something wrong, I get blamed for it. Why did you do that? 
And literally, after weeks of her keep asking, like, why did, why did you do that? He goes, fine, I'll tell you. I'm a Christian. God's forgiven me by grace. Somebody that didn't deserve to took my punishment took my punishment for me. So now it's something I do. Fine, you asked me. And she said, well, what church do you go? And she mentioned, he mentioned the church, Redeemer's Presbyterian. She said, I don't even understand this. See, we have to understand that the gospel, although it's objective news, it takes root and application in our lives. It's something that if we experience the mercy of God, therefore we'll live mercifully. There should be no disconnect. Now, not that we're going to model perfection by any stretch of the imagination. However, if we've experienced grace, it should so disarm us that we have to model grace to everyone. Jesse, if you could play that video for us. We've got a short video, and then we'll continue with the second part of our message.
If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 8 as we continue talking about mercy just for a few moments. The narrative that we just watched briefly is based out of this text in John chapter 8. When thinking about the character of God, I, I can't think of a more clear passage to first understand what his mercy is. The counterpart to the Beatitudes, um, which are also listed in the book of Luke. So the Beatitudes, uh, as you just, if you are reading the Bible, maybe you'll see that there's times uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered what's called the synoptic gospels, which means um, one eye, sin meaning, or, you know, optic meaning eye, sin meaning together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke often will overlap one another in the context of what they're sharing. Where John stands apart from that, not in conflicting details necessarily, as much as sharing in different uh, intent to the author, to the context in which he's writing. John chapter 8, though, he opens up or tells us a story about this woman that's caught in adultery. Now, maybe, honestly, I'm sure there, just because odds have it, there's probably a handful of us that have committed um, something like that, uh, adultery or the seriousness of it. Um, The flip side of that is there's probably a large amount of people in here that have never really committed anything that unjust, realistically. Uh, Most of it has been pretty internal, nothing that you would be punished by the law or has any super lasting effects. However, all of us have been caught by doing something, and it feels terrible. Uh, I was trying to think of an example. I couldn't really think of a good example. I know I was caught like crazy doing things as a child. Um, I'm not quite sure of those things now. God's provenial grace has washed over my mind to redeem me of those things. But I know when I was a child, I was a hellion and a pastor's kid, which makes a great combination. So I was always doing things, and they go, your dad's a pastor. I'd be like, dude, I'm six years old. I have no clue what that even means. I'm six years old. I'm going to throw this as hard as I can against this wall. I'm six years old, and I'm a pastor's kid, yes. Uh, doesn't mean I'm born saved. It just means that I get to torment people like you, and then you have to talk to my dad about it. So John chapter 8, though, when I think about God's incredible grace, what his mercy looks like, how we should understand his character, his nature, and then how we should demonstrate it to the world. Read with me, John chapter 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, caught in adultery, that's, that's, that's interesting. That wasn't like caught with your hand in the cookie jar. Now, to describe adultery in a, uh, it's hard to do that with your clothes on, if I could say it like that. So if you're caught in the middle of adultery, if your hand's in the cookie jar, if you're caught in adultery, that begs the question that she wasn't, um, they weren't holding hands, all right, if I could say it like that. So she's caught in the middle of this act. That's kind of, first of all, that's shameful for multiple reasons. Have you ever had a dream when you had to go back to high school and you were naked? You ever had a dream like that or you were back in, a, in an area and you were naked? Anybody? I'm, okay, now this is weird. I'm the only guy holding my hand. Now it's getting really weird. Somebody say, you've had to have a dream. Okay, with your underwear on? Anybody that was an awkward dream? Please, somebody. All right, everyone's like, no, it's definitely you, man. You're weird. All right, maybe I am. Back off. All right, listen, though. You're caught in the middle of that. I, know, I, I mean, I've never enacted any of any of those things at all, nor have I been caught uh, anywhere other than changing in the YMCA, and that was strange enough for me. Um, 
But you're caught in the act of adultery. This, this woman is unclothed. This woman is vulnerable. It's amazing, though, in this text, you can see the way that the Pharisees were setting this up because the man somehow conveniently was able to disappear. And I think we can all agree it takes two to tango. The man just disappears, but the woman is brought to Jesus, caught in adultery and, pra- and placing her in the midst. They throw her down. They said to him, teacher, this is amazing. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Jesus responds and says this. It says that they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, it's interesting. The first stone... Uh, like contextually what that meant, the first stone was when that happened, it was done. Everybody. Yeah, I don't know if you, sometimes it's like being the first person's heart. Jesus says, whoever's the first stone, who's without sin, you be the first one to start. And as they continued, and once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. That's amazing. The reason for that, the incredible mercy of God displayed through this passage. I I run into a lot of people, especially as our culture um, moves more and more and more towards affirming every type of behavior under the sun. You don't have the right to judge me. How many times have you heard that? Every, Lord, have mercy. I see that every day on Facebook. I got, I got new friends. They're not even my friends. Have you, have you ever have those people on Facebook that are not really your friends, but they're kind of your friends, more acquaintances of your friends that you kind of have to be on there? That You know what I'm talking about? It's like an eternal side hug. It doesn't make any sense. All right. So you, you see this on, you see this on people though. Well, you're a Christian. Jesus didn't judge anyone. And you're right. He didn't. He was judged for them. We have to understand the context of what's taking place here. Because this isn't Jesus affirming her behavior. This wasn't Jesus looking at her behavior and saying, you committed adultery, now go out and do it again. And that's almost what culture wants to take Jesus. We see t-shirts, it's like, you know, Jesus is whatever, my homeboy in t-shirts like that and stuff like that. Listen, if you want to wear a t-shirt like that, I don't give a rip. I think it's dumb, but I don't give a rip, okay? Actually, I guess I do give a rip, it's dumb. You don't wear a shirt that says Jesus is my homeboy. And this whole idea of just kind of dumbing it down to be like, I'm cool, I'm in with Jesus. Like, he affirms my behavior. He doesn't call me to any bit of holiness. He doesn't call me to any life that follows or honors him. But what we see is that God's mercy, and please understand what I'm saying here, God's mercy is his passive wrath. Now, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher by any means, and that's not even what I'm talking about, so don't place it in that category. However, we have to understand that when this woman was caught in the act of adultery, Jesus had every right to say, you're right, the law of Moses, the law of God, the character of God, what God asks of people, she's violated, she deserves death. And Jesus goes, no, 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 neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. As we heard in our video, how could Jesus, how could he say that? Neither do I condemn you. When we, when we take that verse, we have to do one of two things. We either have to say, look, Jesus uh, endorses adultery. Uh, or we can, I guess, another third option to this, we could say, 
Jesus doesn't endorse adultery, but he's just kind of loving, um, ooey-gooey teddy bear in the sky that just kind of hugs people wherever you're at in your behavior and says, go for it. Or we can say that there's something that Jesus was doing in the midst of present time that he would pay for later on. So maybe you've been in the grocery store when you were younger. You'd be walking around um, with your mom or your dad or by yourself, I guess, if you grocery shopped when you were six on your own. I don't know. I guess there's some pretty talented kids out there these days. You're pushing your little cart, and you open up the Snickers bar while you're going through the store. Have you ever done that? I felt like I was cheating. Like, I'd be like, I can't believe I'm eating, you know, or like you'd get a drink, and while you're walking through the store, you've opened it up, and you're drinking it, and then it's empty. It's totally gone, and then they scan it when it's empty. Has anyone ever done that? Now, how can you do that? I mean, how can you, how can you drink, are you stealing that in that moment? What does that look, what is the order? I mean, chronologically, that's not fair right there. You're vi- technically, you're stealing that drink because you didn't pay for it yet. How could Christ say, neither do I condemn you at that point, neither do I condemn you? What we have to understand is that Jesus was in his life and in his ministry as the Son of God, authenticated his ministry, made these claims, forgave sin, healed the sick, and at the end of his life, he said, now I'm paying the price for everything I just did and everything I will do at my death and through my resurrection. See, when we read this, we have to understand that God's mercy is his passive wrath. Now, when I use wrath, that's not really a a phrase I like at all, personally. I'm not a big fan of that. Talk about wrath, though. First thing is, like, that's just not really culturally cool to talk about God's wrath. It's honestly, it's the one part of, um, this, it's not the one part, there's a handful of things in the scripture that I really struggle with. Um, but I trust that it's God's words. I work through it, and I understand in my prideful intellectualism that I'm still trying to learn. I don't like the idea of God judging people. I don't. I'm being completely honest with you. I don't, there's something against in me that doesn't like the idea. You know, I've never, if you, it's, it's, you know, it's unnatural for a Christian to want someone to go to hell. Think about that. that. That's the most outrageous idea for a Christian to want somebody to go to hell. I don't, that, even the book of Ezekiel says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Somehow we've created this idea, though, that God takes pleasure in, 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 in punishing people and sending them to hell. When I, I think that's absolutely, if you're really true to the scripture, I think that's, completely different. See, I don't think God takes any pleasure in sending people to hell. I think people constantly choose over and over and over the created things over the creator. Hell was not created for people. I don't like the idea of hell. If I could take it out of the Bible and stay true to the scripture, I would do it in a heartbeat, but I can't. Romans chapter 2, Paul the apostle writes something that is really profound in this idea. I want you just to Please uh, tune in just for one moment. We really are finishing up. Paul in Romans 1 talks about this divine or actually uh, carnal exchange. Later on, open up the book of Romans chapter 1, if you will, and you can read that. But he talks about this carnal exchange, that what humanity has done is that they've taken the creator God and they've exchanged it for creation. We do the same thing. Now, in the first century time, they had names of their uh, idols or their gods. Um, Aphrodite was the, the goddess of romance and also the goddess of good luck. Um, there's, uh, in Egypt's time, the god of Ra. There's all these different gods. Now, in our culture today, we don't really have names of gods. Like, you don't see anybody in their backyard worshiping a piece of wood or a stone. If you do, 
careful, right? I mean, you, you, don't, you don't see a lot of that. That, in our particular context, now, in other cultures, there's plenty of that. In our American context, our idolatry is far more classy. Uh, we prefer a nice car. And I'm, listen, I'm not saying that a, car, a nice car is an idol. I'm just simply saying we prefer finding our identity in or making temporal things ultimate rather than finding it in a rock or a stone. We want the bigger house, the bigger job, the bigger this, bigger that. I'm saying it. Make a statement. I'm sorry. I'm not against those things whatsoever. I'm not against money. I pray that God blesses you with so much money you don't know what to do with. So you figure out what to do with it so you can use something for it, okay? Like, I'm not against that. I'm not against big houses. I've had people go, you're against big houses. I'm not against big houses. Use them for something, though, okay? Do something for the community with your, your money, your finances, your income. Quit being selfish, okay? Everyone says amen. I mean, seriously, you, you don't need a house with 65 rooms. If you do, let somebody that's homeless sleep in one. It's really not that hard. And if that gets on your nerves, then read your Bible. Seriously, just read your Bible and, and do something for somebody other than yourself. Sorry, I get a little irritated with that stuff. So, okay, we'll move on. Romans chapter 2. So Paul's talking about these people that have um, rebelled against God and have clung to idolatry. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you practice the same things. This is Romans chapter 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and that do you them yourselves, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Listen to that again. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness? I want to talk about that for a moment. And his forbearance and his patience. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance of his patience. There's something almost like when we deal with, uh, when we get caught with something, whatever it is. Bill Clinton was a little bit before my time. Um, I was born, then don't worry, I'm not 12. But uh, I didn't really experience too much of a presidency. I understand from what I, from what I know, and regardless of political party, it sounds like, he did um, some really great things for our economy. It's interesting, though, because the one thing that kind of is a smear is his whole thing with Monica Lewinsky. And I'll never forget that because I didn't really know what all the words meant at that time. But it's, first he starts off with, I deny it. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Then the next thing you know is he explains it. And then they ask him, you know, uh, President Clinton, um, did you have sex with Monica Lewinsky? I, I did not have sex with that woman, or however he said it. I did, I did not have sex with that woman. I did, whatever it is, I didn't have sexual relationships with that woman. I do. I think he's got a beautiful voice, and he plays a mean saxophone. When he said that, though, it's interesting because it's like, dude, what, what? and then he goes, no, I didn't do it. So he starts off by denying it, and then he constructs his own system of righteousness. I was saying, well, it's not exactly like it. And the truth is, we do the same things in our lives. Now, for, whether it's with something really big or really small, we start off by feeling something like this probably not right, and they begin to construct our own system. We deny it, then we explain it, and sometimes we use the, ju- the Bible to justify it, which is even weirder. And then we begin to construct our own system until ultimately we just flat out indulge. Like, it's not even an issue anymore. It just is what it is. And because we haven't been caught or we haven't felt God's conviction come on us, it's like, eh, it's really not even a big deal anymore. Like, eh, I just kind of do it. You know, it's my tax returns. I kind of fudge my numbers. You know, somebody 
calls me, I just kind of tell like a little bit of a lie, like, you know, just kind of cover myself, whatever. And we just kind of begin to dumb this thing down until the point where we presume on God's riches and his kindness to the point because we're like, yeah, it didn't hurt me. It's not a big deal. Like nothing really happened. It's not that big of a deal to the point where we begin to construct our own system and we think nothing happened, therefore it must be right. God's mercy is that in those moments and in our lives, he doesn't condemn us. When Jesus says to the adulterous woman, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. What he was saying is that my mercy is stronger than my wrath. My mercy triumphs over judgment. I love you so much that I'll do everything I can in my character to hold back my righteous quality that says, look how you are doing life, how broken, how dysfunctional this is. But yet God in his mercy will even not judge the worst and most unrighteous of people. Think about that. I mean, I'm not just talking about, you, you know, sitting around at your house and going, I'm really not that bad person. I'm talking about, look at some of the brokenness and the woes of our society and our community, not even just overseas. What about the people, Jimmy and I were talking last night, some of the local massage parlors, personally I haven't visited, but I know that they've busted some towards the Wilkes-Barre area that are involved in sex trade, slave trade. Think about that. Now, if I was God, uh, I would judge them in a heartbeat. But God, in his forbearance and kindness, wishes that no one would suffer. He gives them the absolute every last second of opportunity. If I was God, I would judge somebody in a heartbeat. I would just be like, listen, I'm setting this world up right. But God loves the worst and the most unrighteous, the most filthy, to the point where his mercy exceeds, his mercy overrides his judgment. Not that it doesn't deal with it, but that he judged Christ in our place. I I feel like, uh, and I'm closing now, and if you have any questions, please feel free to text. So far it says, no questions, but you look amazing. Thanks, honey. Uh, I'm kidding. She didn't text that. Um, (laughs) If that was somebody else, we're like, get him out. God's mercy is so incredible. His grace that you can look at the most unrighteous person. That's a totally different way of looking at, God, why, you know, why do you let these things happen? His mercy is so good that he wishes that all would come to repentance. Right now in this, in this room, Romans tells us that the wrath of God is being stored up now, I want to be careful and to say that this is not some, um, God is not bipolar. He doesn't have a split personality issue. He doesn't go, well, I'm angry and I'm love and I'm this and I'm that. He's perfect in every attribute. He's dealt with his judgment. He's dealt with his wrath in the person of Jesus Christ. There's a great Bible word called propitiation. Just say that one with me. It'll make me happy. Propitiation. One more time. Propitiation. I didn't. Uh, propitiation. It's great. You know what that means? The absorbing of wrath. The absorbing of wrath. The absorbing of a punishment. It's not just like the Mr. Miyagi wax on, wax off. Like you sin, let me get rid of it. It's literally the absorbing of wrath. And the scripture says that Christ is not only our propitiation, but the propitiation of the whole world. When Jesus Christ died on that cross. The wrath of God was satisfied. We sing a beautiful song here. When we declare that God's wrath 
that is, could be poured out justfully against us. And if you're still struggling with, or if you are a good or bad person, um, first get married. I'm sure your wife will help you with that. And then second of all, um, I'm sure other situations in life will show you that you're not perfect. And if you think you are, wow, please just go get a cabin in the woods by yourself. You're going to really, you're going to be wounded by every one of us that are broken. And uh, it's, I would hate to pop your bubble and say that the rest of the world's not like you. I'm so thankful that in the midst of our brokenness, I deserve wrath. I'm not saying I'm an adulterous woman. I'm a man. Nor am I adulterous. However, I deserve the law of Moses condemns me. Ten commandments condemn me. I'm done. Don't lie. Don't have other gods before you, before him. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, says that I'm done. I'm toast. I don't have a chance. Like I, it's not, you ever seen a little kid that doesn't have perspective and they try to jump from one couch to the other? It's kind of funny. Like first they're born with these huge heads that don't fit their body. And then they're standing on one couch and they're like, I can make it. And you're like, don't jump. And they're like, woo, bop. And they just pop that head right there. Listen, you, if you think you can clear this gap, you don't have perspective. You're, you're trapped in this negotiating stage of behavioral management where if you, you have this scale in you that if you do more good than bad, then you feel good about yourself. And listen, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to point you to a great savior because in the end of the day, you will fail yourself. You will, I promise. And and I'm not just promising because I've failed myself. I'm promising because history shows that we will fail ourselves. And the law of Moses, God's perfect character commands say, here it is. And we like little kids jumping from one couch to the other go, I can do it, look at me. And then we realize, oh, wow, later this day, and according to the scripture, where Christ just takes something, but this just takes everybody down real quick. You've heard it say, don't commit adultery. I say that if you look at another woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in her heart. You've heard it say, love your neighbor as yourself. I say, love your enemies. See, this is such a distance that we don't have the ability to clear. The law of Moses condemns us. But we have one that's perfectly fulfilled the law of Moses. We have one who is without sin, as we sang today. One that's come in our place, that has become our substitute, that's ransomed us, that's forgiven us, that's cleansed us, and then gives us the most freeing words ever imaginable. Go and sin no more. When Jesus said, go and sin no more, he wasn't just saying, hey, you know what? You probably want to keep your clothes on. You know, take it easy on the whole adultery thing. It's not, there's other jobs out there. That wasn't what he's saying. He's saying, go and sin no more. This requital grace, when I experience the grace of God, what it should do to my heart is so enrapture me in longing to be like him. If I've truly experienced his grace, if I've truly experienced his forgiveness, all I want to do is live for it. This morning, we're, we're done. In case you're wondering, we're going to take communion. As we said this morning, we sang together. We prayed together. We've, get, we've given together. We've listened now to the word. And now this incredible, tangible sign of the grace of God is in front of us. Let me make a couple strong pastoral statements for just a moment. I would ask you, if you're not a believer in Christ at this point, um, I would ask you to please not partake in this communion. If you 
Uh, and that's, that's not a judgment thing. No one will look down on you. If you're still considering the faith here this morning and trying to figure out if it's for you, um, that's fine. Uh, it's just the scripture to us. This is so real. Um, this is not just some grape juice and some bread. We understand that God's actual grace is transmitted into our life. How? I don't understand. All I know is that Corinthians talks about that when we do this, it's not just a meal that we're going, yeah, let's throw down some uh, bread, which is not stale, I will have you know. It was fresh. I, there's nothing worse than taking communion with bad grape juice and stale, stale bread. It just kind of throws off the whole thing. If you're, if you're not a believer here this morning, please just gracefully as we celebrate together, those that are in Christ, please uh, join. If you're not a believer here this morning and you heard the word of God, I pray that you would respond uh, humbly and just simply say, Lord, I give my life to you. The law of Moses, I've broken so many times. If not on a surface level, on a heart level. However, your incredible grace, and I trust in you. I trust in you who doesn't condemn me but was condemned for me on my behalf. If you can, at this moment, we're going to have just a time uh, if you could step out of the aisles if you're going to take communion. And again, if you're considering the faith at this time, please, um, there's no pressure. No one will look down on you. This isn't something we do out of compulsion. But if you can, um, just please, if you are a believer, you don't have to be a member of this church. We'd love for you to join with us in communion. Please take the elements back to our chairs, uh, and then we'll wait together and partake with one another. Um, I think what I heard the best way to do is actually to step out of the aisle and then come around this way so it doesn't get clogging. So if we can, let's stand together and um, we'll take the elements back to our chairs.